You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program offering you a review of recent news articles from various sources. This is being recorded on the 6th of January, 2023, for the listening week that begins the 7th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. I want to open with a recently added news source for this program, KC, the Kansas City Defender. And they offered a review of their top articles for the year. I've pulled two of those. This one was posted June 21st. Making history, KC Defender brings community together with historic basketball park takeover. The park takeover was more reminiscent of a community program by the 1960s Black Panther Party than an event hosted by a news outlet. The breakdown. This weekend, the Defender hosted our first-ever major community event. The event resulted in one of the biggest basketball park takeovers in recent Kansas City history. In fact, the event was more reminiscent of a community program by the 1960s Black Panther Party than an event hosted by a news outlet, and that's precisely what we were hoping to achieve. On Thursday, we hosted a kids' camp. On Friday, we hosted the first major park run, and due to such a massive turnout at the park run, and by popular demand, we held a second park run on Saturday. Why was this basketball park run so important? The event was far more than a basketball tournament. We did what no other news outlet in the country is currently doing, We engaged, created trust with, and built relationship with 14 to 19-year-old black boys and men. We even had young brothers from Wyandotte, Kansas, drive out to participate. Bullet points. 14 to 19-year-old black boys slash men are of the most racially targeted demographic in the country. We are violently targeted by police. We are forced into gang or drug activity for survival. We have had our black men role models ripped from our communities and encaged as a part of a war on our communities. Second, rarely, if ever, do we have safe places, pardon me, safe places to simply experience black boy joy with one another without needing to have our guard up. This weekend, with a total of over 200 black boys, slash men, some from the suburbs and many from under-resourced areas, we were able to do just that. Important note, we had absolutely no police or security presence and had zero incidents of violence. This reinforced our belief as an abolitionist news outlet that police are not necessary to keep our communities safe and that abolition is about the presence of community and life-affirming services to create safety, rather than relying on police overseers. Why is a news outlet hosting a basketball tournament? 
It is often forgotten that the black press was historically the second most important institution in the black community behind the black church. That was the case because they did not view themselves as detached, pardon me, that's disattached, objective observers who must remain impartial. Number one, they did not prescribe to the Eurocentric philosophy that media ought to be isolated from the community. It was, in fact, the exact opposite. They viewed their role as not only to inform the community, but to be as actively engaged with it as a school or a church might be. And this essential aspect of the black press tradition has been lost, often due to attempts to remain unbiased in a way, pardon me, in the way of our white peer media institutions. At the Defender, we are returning to our roots. One more thing. The summer is undoubtedly the most violent time of the year and also when our city experiences the most deaths resulting from gun violence. These kinds of positive community programs and activities are what our youth need in order for such harms to be deterred. Numerous of the brothers at the park takeover said they'd love for this to not be a one-time thing, but something we continue all summer long. Keeping it real, we were only able to pull this off because of previous donations, but to be frank, there's just no way we'd have had the time or resources to continue this work without additional financial support. If you have enjoyed our journalism and considered donating but have not done so yet, please, please consider becoming a Defender monthly supporter so we can continue this not only radical truth-telling journalism, but tangible community impact. Our new website has made it super easy to donate, and that is kansascitydefender.com. This next article from the same source, posted June 4th, written by Ryan S. Missouri right-wing extremist organization launches fascist, quote, woke heat map targeting schools for teaching black history and gender. A right-wing extremist organization released an alarming map notifying followers to hotspots of woke activity. The map, quote, reads like a school hit list. A right-wing extremist Missouri organization has released an alarming map notifying followers of hot spots of what they describe as woke activity taking place across the state, Harvard-trained lawyer and founder of Mighty Missouri Project, Lindsay Simmons, says the group is funded by dark money and described the map as reading like a school hit list. After finding out about the map, Mayor Quentin Lucas tweeted this, I'm concerned, but sadly not surprised, to see a heat map released recently by an extremist Missouri outfit masquerading as a mainstream political organization that attacks and targets schools and individual educators in Kansas City and throughout Missouri. Mayor Quentin Lucas. As of this week, the 12 map locations are all related to educational institutions, 
and link to tweets, articles, and videos targeting schools that teach material relating to race, black history, gender, and other topics, which white extremists often incorrectly define as critical race theory or, quote, sexual material. The hit list-like heat map identifies at least 12 schools or school districts, which is particularly chilling given America's rapidly rising rate of mass shootings motivated by white supremacist terrorist ideologies. On its website, Liberty Alliance describes itself as, quote, committed to fighting back against the woke agenda permeating all across Missouri. The first step in fighting back is uncovering their crazy ideas, from critical race theory to grooming toddlers with sexually explicit books, the group says. It goes on. That is why we have officially launched the Woke Heat Map, an interactive tool designed to expose the insane actions of the radical left. This map will alert Missourians of craziness happening in their own communities, end quote. Critical race theory, a primarily legal framework which observes how laws and policies perpetuate systemic racism, has become a right-wing, fascist, catch-all phrase employed by largely white supremacists who do not want schools teaching anything about race, white supremacy, black history, or quite frankly, factual American history. Since the ascendance of the anti-CRT movement, educators across the country are increasingly experiencing abuse, physical violence, and even threats of prison time for simply teaching accurate historical facts. In New Hampshire, for instance, teachers face new legal threats for teaching so-called divisive concepts on race with the law citing it as a, quote, psychological warfare. The woke heat map appears to be inspired by the fascist law implemented in New Hampshire, quote, which is enforced by everyday citizens who can use a new web portal to report teachers. Once a report has been made, a person, quote, can sue the school district and the New Hampshire State Board of Education can discipline a teacher by terminating their position or stripping their teaching license, end quote. One of the hotspots on the so-called heat map links to a tweet by the Florida governor's press secretary who infamously said that all pro-LGBTQ allies are pedophiles. While the map claims to be interactive and its creators boast it as a, quote, new technology, it is in fact neither. Rather, users of the websites are told to interact with the site by filling out forms on the site in order to report new woke hotspots that will be then added to the map. Numerous Twitter followers were incredibly disturbed by it. And according to HuffPost, little is known about the organization's funding. It's registered as a social welfare organization rather than a political action committee under 501c4 of the IRS code, that classification allows it to dodge campaign finance filing requirements, even though the Missouri Democratic Party has said the group is involved in elections.
Moving now to the New York Times. This was posted December 28th, written by Hilary M. Sheets. Illuminating Toni Morrison's Manuscripts at Princeton. A campus-wide slate of public events and exhibitions starting in February will celebrate the author. The creative process of the Nobel laureate Toni Morrison, who brought an indelible black voice to American literature in novels including Song of Solomon from 1977 and Beloved, 1987, and taught at Princeton from 1989 to 2006, will be on display next semester at the university. A campus-wide slate of public events and exhibitions uses the 200 linear feet of Morrison's personal papers acquired by Princeton in 2014 from the author as the springboard for new scholarship and cross-disciplinary collaborations. This project is bringing artists and scholars to Princeton who may not normally have come here and is pushing the thinking about what an archive, pardon me, that's what the archive can inspire, said Autumn Womack, a professor in the African American Studies and English departments who spearheaded the initiative. With a team of graduate students, Womack has spent two years culling 90 never-before-exhibited objects from some 400 boxes of Morrison's manuscript drafts, speeches, correspondence, photographs, and other ephemera housed in the Princeton University Library's Department of Special Collections. The selections will go on view in the exhibition titled Toni Morrison, Sites of Memory opening February 22nd in the Milberg Gallery at Firestone Library. Highlights include day planners from 1974 and 75 when Morrison was working at Random House. Parentheses, she was the first black woman senior editor in fiction. And outlining Song of Solomon during spare moments in the margins of paper schedules that she carried in a bag. The only extant drafts of that novel, these planners, also contain notes for speeches and editorial feedback for people she was working with, including Angela Davis and Muhammad Ali. The day planners are this really dynamic space where you see all the layers of her career and different kinds of writing she was doing, said Womack. She also excavated some of Morrison's hand-drawn maps of imagined spaces in Beloved and Paradise from 1997, visualizing the worlds from which her characters emerged, as well as correspondence from friends and collaborators in the 1970s and 80s, including Tony Cade Bambara and Nina Simone, that illuminates black feminist thought as it was taking shape. Another exhibition puts sculptures, prints, and textiles by the visual artist Alison Saar in conversation with the author's writings. Titled Cycle of Creativity, Alison Saar and the Toni Morrison Papers, it opens on February 25th at the Princeton University Art Museum's Art at Brain, pardon me, Bainbridge Gallery. Both women share a dedication to this idea that they are actively seeking out their ancestors in order to create a platform for their descendants, said Mitra Abaspur, the museum's curator of modern and contemporary art, who was invited by Womack to plumb the Morrison archive.
For example, the curator has pulled out Morrison's typed 1993 Nobel lecture, creased from when she had it folded in her pocket, and handwritten sheets of yellow legal paper that she used to brainstorm her talk, said Abispoor. In that speech, Morrison delivers a dialogue between an old blind woman and some children. Abispoor will juxtapose these papers with Sars' Swing Low, which was from 2007, a small bronze iteration of the artist's monument in Harlem that also speaks to the idea of intergenerational exchange, that sculpture at West 122nd Street, where St. Nicholas Avenue meets Frederick Douglass Boulevard, was installed as a way of linking the historical event of the Underground Railroad with the creative fluorescence of the Harlem Renaissance, said Abbasbor. Saar will appear in conversation with the poet Evie Shockley at Princeton, where 30 thinkers, including the novelist Edwidge Danticat and the Berkeley professor Stephen M. Best, will consider Morrison's archive in a symposium from March 23rd to the 25th. It will be punctuated by two newly commissioned works from the performance artists Daniel Alexander Jones and Mame Diara Samantha Spies. Spies. S P E I S. Made in response to Morrison's papers, that to be presented March 24th and 25th at the university's McCarter Theater. On April 12th, the jazz vocalist Cecile McLaurin Salvant will perform a new composition inspired by the archive. Co co-presented by Princeton University Concerts. That's at Richardson Auditorium in Alexander Hall. This project could only be done at Princeton, said Womack. It really is opening the gates in a number of different ways. Another one from the New York Times. This was posted December 19th, prior to Kwanzaa starting. Written by Bridget Washington the unassuming ingredient at the heart of a chef's Kwanzaa feast. Ricky Moore, the owner of Saltbox Seafood Joint in Durham, North Carolina, honors his past and crowns his end-of-year celebrations with peanuts. Dateline, Durham, North Carolina. The chef Ricky Moore was 10 years old when his maternal grandmother, Bernice McLeese Lofton, introduced him to a tradition that would define his professional trajectory and his holiday celebrations. For more than seven years, Miss Lofton would hand Mr. Moore, her eldest grandchild, a cold 16-ounce gla glass bottle of Pepsi and a small parcel of roasted salted peanuts at the end of each week as they sat on the front porch of her home in eastern North Carolina. The two would then drop a few peanuts into the soda. It was a rush of sweet and salt with crunch and liquid happening all at once, said Mr. Moore, the chef and owner of Saltbox Seafood Joint, who this year was named Best Chef, Southeast at the James Beard Foundation Awards. The ritual remains Mr. Moore's most enduring and affecting food memory, one that informs the centerpiece of his Kwanzaa celebration, a luscious peanut fish stew. Mr. Moore began observing Kwanzaa 20 years ago, and in the beginning, 
He was especially interested in the food traditions surrounding the holiday. There is not a central, definitive culinary tradition that roots Kwanzaa, which is celebrated from December 26th to January 1st. And many cooks look to foods across the African diaspora to anchor their festivities. I decided to only serve dishes that were truly meaningful and personal, said Mr. Moore. For Mr. Moore, who is 53, that means a dish where peanuts, an indispensable ingredient that binds his past and present, play a central role. Typically on the Friday of Kwanzaa, he makes 60 portions of peanut fish stew which features punchy aromatics like ginger and garlic, as well as chopped fresh peanuts and a from-scratch peanut butter. Mr. Moore cooks the stew outdoors in a huge cast-iron cauldron. It's too big for me to cook indoors from a safety standpoint, he said, laughing. The other meal he prepares for his family and friends, usually on the Sunday of Kwanzaa, is an allspice-scented brown stew pork shoulder, served with skillet-fried plantains and rice. Even though he is a chef, everyone in his immediate family has a hand in taking the stew across the finish line, for there are more than two dozen guests. His daughter, Hunter, who is a college freshman, prepares the vegetables, and his 15-year-old son, Grayson, makes the peanut butter. His wife, Norma, makes the Carolina gold rice that they serve with the stew. All of us involved in the meal prep literally signifies the unity collective work and responsibility principles of Kwanzaa, he said, which I like to think is what Kwanzaa is all about, togetherness, community, and connection. Next, some more recent news posted by the Denver Post on January 6th, written by John Winsell. Oh, pardon me. I was wrong about that. It's posted originally December 29th. Must have been updated on the 6th. Parks Grant will help History Colorado identify and preserve Green Book sites. The Green Book helped black travelers find safe accommodations during the era of segregation. The state's official historical society will use a $75,000 grant from the National Park Service to investigate and preserve Green Book sites in Colorado, where black travelers could find safe places to stay during the era of segregation in the U.S. History Colorado's State Historic Preservation Office will also nominate at least one of the locations to both the National and State Registers of Historic Places, said officials this week, opening the site up for grants and tax credits. There's an incredible rich history here, and we need to and will learn more about it, said Patrick Eidman, Chief Preservation Officer for History Colorado. This is a recognition at the federal level that, there, that this pardon me, is an important project. The oasis of motels and hotels that catered to African-American travelers in Denver's Five Points neighborhood, for example, were joined by unofficial spots known as Quote, tourist homes. Black travelers also moved frequently between Denver and Gilpin County's Winks Panorama, a nationally rare black lodge that hosted legends such as Duke Ellington and Zora Neale Hurston. Still, the Bible of black travel during Jim Crow, as the Washington Post once called it, 
has all but been forgotten in many historical corners, and chances to preserve that history are fading fast. This is just one of the first phases of the project, Eidman said, of the funding. We're doing surveys, and we're going to be doing community engagement and collecting oral histories. I think a lot of building owners will even be surprised that their private homes hosted Jim Crow era travel for African Americans, he added. History Colorado's survey is part of a larger effort by the State Historic Preservation Office to make up for the severe lack of historic preservation in marginalized communities. As of 2020, only 8% of all locations listed on the National Register of Historic Places represented communities of color and or women, said officials, and only 5% of properties listed in Colorado's State Register of Historic Places were related to women and people of color. The Colorado State Historical Foundation began an effort in 2019 with funding from History Colorado to catalog Green Book locations across the state, such as Lamar's Alamo Hotel, Pueblo's Coronado Motel, Durango's Strader Hotel, and the Chipeta Cafe in Montrose. The latest award is History Colorado's third grant from the Underrepresented Community Grant from the National Park Service. Following support in 2021 and 2017 for sites associated with the women's suffrage movement across the state and Hispano communities in the San Luis Valley, respectively. The total for all three grants is 167-201 Pardon me, that's $167,201. Including Colorado, the National Park Service over the last eight years has awarded $5.75 million through the Underrepresented Communities Grants Program. Our next article comes from the Washington Post. was written by Gregory S. Schneider, posted January 2nd. White contractors wouldn't remove Confederate statues, so a black man did it. Dateline, Richmond, Virginia. Workers in bright yellow vests circled up in the morning chill. Some clutched cups of Starbucks coffee, a last comfort before beginning the hard work of dismantling a statue of Confederate General A.P. Hill in the middle of an intersection. As a small group of Confederate heritage defenders assembled nearby at least one of them armed, City Safety Coordinator Miles Jones lectured the work crew on wearing hard hats and eye protection, and who, he asked, would be the site supervisor? A bearded man in Ray-Ban sunglasses and a Norfolk State University sweatshirt sweatshirt, stepped forward. Jones asked, what is your name, sir? Devon Henry. Devon Hen, Jones began, and then dropped his voice respectfully. Oh, Mr. Henry, of course. The name carries weight in Richmond these days. Over the past three years, as the former capital of the Confederacy has taken down more than a dozen monuments to the lost cause, Henry, who is black, has overseen all of the work. He didn't seek the job. He never had paid much attention to Civil War history, City and state officials said they turned to Team Henry Enterprises after a long list of bigger contractors, all white-owned, 
said they wanted no part of taking down Confederate statues. For a black man to step in carried enormous risk. Henry concealed the name of his company for a time and long shunned media interviews. He had endured, pardon me, he has endured death threats, seen employees walk away, and been told by others in the industry that his future is ruined. He started wearing a bulletproof vest on job sites and got a permit to carry a concealed firearm for protection. The drama interrupted Henry's careful plans to build his business, but after removing 24 monuments in Virginia and North Carolina, Henry, 45, has grown more comfortable with his role in enabling an historic reckoning with social injustice across the South. The threats haven't let up. Henry has simply learned to live with them. He said, My head's in a different place now. It's like, I'm not scared to cross the street, but I'm always going to look both ways, right? So I'm not totally oblivious to who I am and what I've done, but I'm just not letting fear kind of drive what I do. Over and over, history-minded friends directed Henry to the words of John Mitchell, Jr., the civil rights pioneer and editor of the Richmond Planet, a groundbreaking African-American newspaper. In 1890, the year the state erected an enormous statue of Robert E. Lee on what would become Monument Avenue, Mitchell wrote about the resilience of the black person in society. Mitchell wrote, The Negro put up the Lee Monument, and should the time come, we'll be there to take it down. The call that changed Henry's life came in the middle of a business meeting in early June 2020. He ignored it at first, but his phone kept going off and finally a friend texted, You might want to pick up. On the line was Clark Mercer, the chief of staff for then-Governor Ralph Northam. With a wild proposition, would Henry's construction company be willing to oversee the dismantling of the giant statue of Lee on state-owned property along Monument Avenue? Such a thing was nowhere on Henry's radar screen. His company was experienced at building things and at preparing sites for construction. Outside of work, though, change was in the air, partly in reaction to the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville in 2017. The General Assembly had passed a bill early in 2020 to allow localities to take down Confederate statues. That May... The murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police touched off nationwide racial justice protests that in Richmond focused on Monument Avenue and its iconic memorials. Northam, a Democrat, decided it was time to act. Protesters and police were clashing every night. He wanted to move fast. Mercer and Henry had met some time before at an event at Northwoke State, Henry's alma mater, and where he sits on the Board of Visitors. Now, Mercer confessed that he was reach, me, reaching out because he was desperate. Everyone else had turned him down. I was pretty forthcoming that we hadn't been able to find anybody to take on the job, said Mercer in an interview. In fact, the responses from other contractors were, quote, pretty overtly racist, he said, including language that he found threatening. Devon seemed to understand the magnitude of what I was asking him, he said. Henry never paid much attention to Confederate monuments. Growing up in Hampton and Newport News, 
He went to Robert E. Lee Elementary School, but the name meant little to him. There were bigger concerns. His mother had been only sixteen when Henry was born in Lumberton, North Carolina. She moved to Hampton Roads and took up work in McDonald's restaurants to support herself and her baby. At fourteen, Devon began making ship, pardon me, taking shifts at McDonald's as well. He got good grades in school and developed an ambition to be a doctor. But after majoring in biology at Norfolk State, Henry found himself drawn to business. After college, he went, pardon me again, he got into the corporate leadership program at General Electric, and the company paid for him to get a master's degree as he worked in its infrastructure division. He immersed himself in biographies of business leaders, such as Ray Kroc of McDonald's. His mother, meanwhile, had taken advantage of training programs at McDonald's, climbed the ladder, and then, by the time Henry was grown, became a franchisee. She wound up owning five restaurants in the Richmond area. Her example of hard work pushed Henry. When he learned of a small construction business going up for sale in the city of Suffolk, he made a snap decision to leave GE and put all of his savings into buying that. Henry and his wife commuted 90 minutes every day from Richmond to Suffolk in separate cars so one could get back and pick up their daughter, pardon me, their daughter from school. Over time, Henry expanded the business and relocated it closer to home. He always tried to be a socially conscious, pardon me again, he always tried to be socially conscious, becoming a federal emergency management agency contractor to help people in need. But in early 2020, one particular job transformed his outlook about what was possible. Team Henry was the general contractor for construction of the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers at the University of Virginia. Henry said, It was and is still today our most meaningful project. Winning that job wasn't about the money. It was about the meaning and the response that it would have. Giving voice to the voiceless. He attended Charlottesville community sessions to hear people speak about what they wanted the memorial to convey. He helped pick out the stone and flew to Wisconsin to watch it being cut. Then he carefully fit each piece together into a sweeping circle in honor of people whose lives had been all but erased. He said, Participating in something like that gives you purpose and meaning for your work. So when Mercer called to pitch him on taking down a Confederate monument, Henry viewed it differently than he might have before. He had come to understand that those statues, especially Lee, were like religious objects to their defenders. They had stood more than a century as totems of a powerful mythology, that slavery was somehow benign, that Southerners were the noble victims of Northern aggression, that things were better when white people presided over an orderly world, the lost cause. For a black man to destroy such a symbol would put his life, his family, his livelihood on the line. Henry knew that in Louisiana, a white contractor withdrew from the job of removing four Confederate monuments after receiving death threats. Someone torched the man's car. But Henry saw this as a powerful chance to give a bit of justice to the souls represented by the memorial to enslaved people. 
He wanted to talk with his family and his team at the company before committing. Mercer told him to take a few hours. Henry immediately went home and rounded up his wife and teenage daughter and son. He explained that he had an opportunity that would be somewhat controversial and described it. My son was like, well, Dad, look, you're going to always be my hero, so it doesn't really matter, Henry said, but this would be really cool. His wife and daughter agreed. At work, some employees, quote, really didn't like the idea of it at all and were not in favor of us moving forward. Some were more about security, safety. Some just didn't believe in the work. A few who were opposed eventually left the company. But Henry called Mercer back and agreed to do it. Once on board, he pushed to act quickly without warning the public. But as soon as Northam called a news conference to announce that the statue was coming down, a handful of local residents filed a lawsuit to stop him. Court proceedings put the project on ice for more than a year. Within just a few weeks, though, Henry got another call. Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney wanted to take down a whole series of monuments on city property. Bob Steidel, a deputy city administrator tasked with making it happen, had run into the same problem as Mercer, trying to find a contractor. Then someone with the state suggested Henry. He was the only one to step up, and I give him all the respect for that, because in June of 2020 it was a difficult decision to be made, said Steidel in an interview. He went on, personally, professionally, he had everything at stake, and he still did it. Once again, Henry had to move fast. His biggest need was finding a crane that could lift the statues. He thought he had one lined up in Hamden Roads. But when the company's patriarch found out that his son had tentatively agreed, he threatened to cut the son out of the business, said Henry. Eventually, Henry found a willing crane operator in Connecticut. The big next issue, pardon me, the next big issue was security. This was all being done on the fly. Protesters and police were facing off on the streets around the statues every night. Virginia's new law allowing the monuments to come down hadn't technically gone into effect yet, and Richmond's acting city attorney refused to give Stoney his blessing. City police didn't want to participate under those circumstances, said Stoney in an interview. Henry used some divine pressure to solve the problem. He attended the same church as Richmond's sheriff, Antoinette Irving. With the pastor's help, he persuaded Irving to provide about a half-dozen deputies to keep watch at the work site. On July 1, 2020, the first target, a statue of General Stonewall Jackson at an intersection along Monument and Avenue, pardon me, came down amid chaos on a cinematic scale. Through miscommunication, traffic control set up barricades at the wrong intersection. Henry had to maneuver his equipment into place as a handful of deputies struggled to keep traffic at bay. His younger brother showed up to make sure Henry was safe. Thousands of onlookers chanted, screamed, and taunted the bronze, pardon me, the bronze figure of Jackson high on his horse. One tearful Confederate defender begged for work to stop. Deputies had to haul him away. As TV cameras carried the scene live, nationwide, 
Henry's men kept trying and failing to get the statue detached from its stone base, and then the heavens poured torrential rain. Stoney, monitoring from a secret location to avoid being served any court papers that might halt the action, kept calling Henry. What was the delay? Henry's mother kept calling with the same question. He quit looking at his phone. Crew members cut a hole in the base of the statue and discovered an underpinning holding it in place. Once that was disconnected, Henry sig signaled the crane to put some tension on the line. When the statue wobbled, Henry felt a sudden rush of panic. He said, I'm like, oh, yes, this is really about to happen. Finally, with church bells ringing and lightning flashing, the crane lifted the statue high into the rainstorm, just as a mighty clap of thunder drowned out the roaring crowd. Henry remembered, People are crying, people are jumping up and down, I'm going crazy. At this point, law enforcement had no control. It was a hundred percent chaotic. As the crane lowered the statue to the ground, Henry was awed by the size of the thing. The crowd surged forward. Someone said they wanted to urinate on it. Henry hollered for people to stay back. Then he noticed one African-American woman looking at him with an expression of utter disgust. Henry said he felt confused. Wasn't she happy at what he had just done? She was like, Why are you showing so much care to the statue? Just drop it. Just let it go. Kick it over. Nobody cared about George Floyd. But you care about this statue? At that moment, Henry realized just how difficult this work was going to be. He resolved to stay professional. He said, I wasn't going to let my feelings, or being a black man and knowing what these statues represent, get in front of me being a professional and doing my job. Over the next few weeks, Henry and his team moved on to dismantle more than a dozen other monuments around Richmond under a $1.8 billion that's million, $1.8 million umbrella contract. Though Henry initially concealed his company behind a shell called N-A-H-L-L-C, as in, nah, these statues need to come down, he said, local observers soon caught on. A political rival on the city council accused Stoney of improperly awarding the contract because Henry had donated $4,000 to the mayor's campaign several years before, investigators found no evidence of wrongdoing. Henry's crew was getting better at its unusual work and was becoming in demand as more and more localities followed suit. He removed the statues of Lee and Jackson in Charlottesville that had been the focus of the white supremacist rally. He took down a statue of Jackson at Virginia Military Institute where someone threw a bag of fried chicken at the workers. He was invited to remove a statue in Shreveport, Louisiana, said Henry, but declined because the work included reinstalling the monument on a battlefield. He said, I wanted no part of that. Fielding threats became routine, from racial slurs shouted by passing vehicles to menacing voicemails. Henry referred all of those to the police, who had eventually become close partners. Someone called the Crane Company and warned that they'd never get back to Connecticut. Callers tried to get the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration to shut down the work sites. Others tried to get the labor union to step in. All the while, 
Henry was planning for the big one, the huge statue of Lee on state-owned property. The Supreme Court of Virginia cleared away the last legal challenge, and the work was set for September 8, 2021. That day was bright and sunny. Police cleared the vast traffic circle around the monument. Onlookers kept at a distance, danced and sang with the happy air of a street party. Henry rode a bucket truck up alongside the statue as his crew, now experts at this kind of work, quickly removed the bolts that secured it to the base. Henry actually slowed the process for a few moments. He needed to give Northam time to get there from the state capitol. Suddenly, Henry felt overcome with emotion. He thought about Jimmy Palmer, a rigger with the crane company who had become a close friend but died of cancer before he could help bring Lee down. He thought about all the elderly black people who had told him they never thought they'd see this day, and about how they thanked him for fulfilling Mitchell's vision. He said, It hit me like a bag of rocks. I just started crying. He told the bucket truck operator to take him down. The statue was hoisted off its pedestal in less than an hour after 131 years of towering over Richmond's grandest street. Henry's mother, Frida Thornton, who now lives in South Carolina, ran through the security, brigade, pardon me, the security barricade and surprised her weeping son with a big hug. I just kind of held him for a minute just to let him get himself together, Thornton remembered. I told him, you did it, and God's favor protected you and it's over. I said, it's over. The work is completed now. There was, of course, one more Richmond statue to come down. The A.P. Hill monument was different because the general's remains were buried beneath it. Court proceedings for moving a grave delayed the project, giving Henry and the city time to plan. In the meantime, Henry said his business boomed. If some potential clients avoided him because of the statues, more sought him out. We're busier than we've ever been, he said. Team Henry has grown to 200 employees after starting out 15 years ago with just four. The company won recent contracts to build a bank and a credit union and to rehabilitate a structure that once housed enslaved Africans at what is now the Richmond Hill Religious Retreat. As he thought about the significance of the Confederate statues, Henry decided he wanted to find a way to turn the destruction into something positive. That led to a venture in which artists of color created digital images of statues being dismantled that can be sold as NFTs, with all proceeds going to charities. Henry said, we want to kind of change the narrative a little bit about the removal and what they mean. The Thirteen Stars Project, a reference to the Confederate battle flag, was set to debut in 2022, but stalled when the cryptocurrency market and NFT craze both cooled. Henry said he's ready to launch again. When it came time in early December to finally get the hill removal underway, Henry approached it methodically. From his point of view, there would be little emotion with this one. There was Pardon me, that was for the Hill relatives and funeral home workers on hand to take care of the general's remains. Henry's mission as the man who finally drove the Confederates out of Richmond was nearly complete. He had a brief, blunt message that morning 
for the chili workers as they prepared to do the unusual work that has become so familiar. He told them, it's the last one. Let's do it right and get out of here. If you personally are interested in the 13 Stars Project, there's a website, www.cryptofederacy.com. C-R-Y-P-T-O-F-E-D-E-R-A-C-Y. Cryptofederacy.com. The next article comes from thegrio.com for those who are planning to travel in the new year. This was posted December 26th, written by Noel Simon Walker. Planning 2023 travel without a companion? Find your people in a black travel group. Pardon me. Is travel topping your list of resolutions for 2023, but you foresee rolling solo? Among the best things to come out of the social media era are black travel groups. For generations prior, black leisure travel abroad seemed elusive. Sure, celebrities traveled for their jobs, military personnel were actively based all over the world, and there were ample opportunities to study abroad. However, the picture wasn't as clear for black travelers who wanted to travel for leisure, luxury, and fun. Social media threw open the door for the black diaspora to explore their curiosity about other countries without media bias and to engage with black travel groups as a means to get out there and explore in person. These days, black travel groups are spaces for black travelers and aspiring travelers to connect, whether through Facebook travel agencies, travel blogs, or IRL meetup spaces. We've all heard or experienced cautionary tales where folks start planning a trip, and in the end, only the planner with the most intention makes the journey after everyone else drops out. By contrast, the best aspect of black travel groups is a mutual intention, education, like-mindedness, and seriousness about global exploration. While solo travel is a vibe, it is not on everyone's bucket list. Black travel groups offer the community of other black wanderers who want to see the same places, explore the same activities, and share the same interests before you even meet them in real life. And while there are tons of travel groups out there, there are a few notable ones. Take Danny Rivers Mitchell of Black Girls Travel 2, that's T-O-O, who creates the most soul-fulfilling experiences for black women in South Africa and Barbados. Or PEEP, Urban Events Global, which offers co-ed trips to Dubai. There is an abundance of options and few excuses for why you can't see the world. To get started, check out our list of black travel groups below. I will read brief summaries from the paragraphs. Black Girls Travel 2 is one of the hottest black travel groups for black women, founded by Daniel Rivers in 2015. That's Daniel Rivers Mitchell. Black Girls Travel 2 creates travel experiences that breathe life into black women because we are deserving! Exclamation. Welcomes black women of all demographics to join their immersive trips with inclusive, 
round-trip airport transfers, locally advised itinerary using spanning between, oh, usually spanning, pardon me, between 8 to 11 nights. Their website, blackgirlstravel2.com, to learn more. Information on trips to South Africa, India, and Australia is already available on the website. Urban Events Global, founded in 2011 by Kevin Knight. This is the adventure-seeking dra black travel company of dreams. An army brat, Kevin was born in Frankfurt, Germany, and moved throughout much of his childhood. In response to friends' re frequent requests that he alert them when he was flying out, he decided to call their bluff and create a travel group and company so black like-minded travelers could see the world through his eyes. Urban Events Global not only curates trips but also throws events like the UEG Meetup Urban Excursion Weekend, Urban Cruise Weekend, and Urban Camp Weekend where there are 400 to 2,000 participants. Check out urbaneventsglobal.com to see the turn up and book a trip today. Brute, pardon me, that's Rush Escape. Millennial and Gen Z black women can relish travel with Rush Escape. If you, if you glance at its Instagram page, you will see a range of baddies on group trips touring the world's most exotic locations. The brainchild of Jamaican traveler and influencer and entrepreneur Richie Ann Russell J. Rush Escapes not only puts together full-on group trips that you and your girls can partake in with Richie Ann, but as a travel concierge company, they manage clients such as pardon me, client needs, such as accommodations, flights, activities, special requests and romantic dinner setups, and massages. Rush Escapes also offers expedited passport and visa help. Check out Rush Escapes on Instagram. Sisters Traveling Solo Cole Banks was a frequent solo traveler when she came across an online post discouraging black women to travel alone. To combat that fear and rhetoric, she created her traveling company, Sisters Traveling Solo. Founded in 2018, STS has become one of the go-to traveling companies and groups for black women considering solo journeys. Although STS teams curate various group trips, many of which are sold out already for 2023, the education, experience, and courage to travel solo that this company promotes are worth looking into. Black women deserve a break and time to recoup, and with trip options to places like Greece, Bali, and Jordan, to name a few, STS is the perfect remedy. To learn more, check them out at sisterstravelingsolo.com. Black and Abroad was founded in 2015 by Eric Martin and Kent Johnson as a multi-platform travel and lifestyle company for black folks. With corporate backgrounds, Martin and Johnson have been able to create an optimal space for young adult black travelers to tap into the diverse travel experiences of luxury, adventure, and culture, not always promoted to black communities. Black and Abroad's online community has visited over 100 countries and expanded awareness of black travel on all seven continents through micro and macro events. 
Black and Abroad offers group trips to places like Tanzania, France, Colombia, and more. If you're looking for a group trip to partake in, visit blackandabroad.com to learn more. B-Girl World B-Girl World was created to promote teenage girls' global education and travel. Through its global ambassador program, known as BGAP, high school girls gather monthly for meetups where they learn and practice self-actualization, leadership, exploration, resourcefulness, and service, while also getting the chance to domestically and internationally travel. This Philadelphia-based program also offers two black female-identifying college students the chance to win a scholarship if accepted into a study abroad program. If you're in the Philadelphia area, look into B-Girl World. That's spelled B-E-G-I-R-L-W-O-R-L-D for your young one. Just two more. I'm running out of time. We have Nomadness Travel Tribe. If you want to bond with a predominantly black travel community, look no further than Nomadness Travel Tribe. The number one travel lifestyle brand and group, NTT, has a prerequisite of at least one passport stamp to enter the tribe. Once that is fulfilled, you are immersed into a global society of over 25,000 travelers who travel consciously and intentionally to lands rich in black and brown legacy. These are not always your typical spots, however. You would be surprised to learn about the places where black and brown people have made their imprint on history. If you're interested in them, that is nomadnesstraveltribe.com. And finally, Advantage International. A husband and wife team have created Advantage International, a travel program for African Americans who want to travel the world in luxury and style and have yet to look back. As a veteran in the game, with 25 years of experience, Advantage International appeals to not only new travelers, but Generation X and baby boomers who have actually saved their money for times like these. They have a website, Advantage International. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the DAV Charitable Trust, empowering veterans to live high-quality lives with respect and dignity. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.